several scriptures for this morning. But our first scripture will come from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through the first part of chapter 14. He says, what else is there to say? Just this. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power, put on God's complete armor. Then you'll be able to stand firm against the devil's trickery. The warfare we're engaged in, you see, isn't against flesh and blood. It's against the leaders, against the authorities, against the powers that rule in the world in this dark age against the wicked spiritual elements in the heavenly places. For this reason, you must take up God's complete armor. Then when wickedness grabs its moment, you'll be able to withstand to do what needs to be done and still to be on your feet when it's all over. So stand firm. Put the belt of truth around your waist. Put on justice as your breastplate. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. I think you'll find out why I like this translation. Peter writes in his letter, he says, So fasten your belts, the belts of your minds. Keep yourselves under control. Set your hope completely on the grace that will be given you when Jesus the Messiah is revealed. As children of obedience, don't be squashed into the shape of the passions you used to indulge when you were still in ignorance. Rather, just as the one who called you is holy, so be holy yourselves in every aspect of behavior. It is written, you see, be holy for I am holy. If you call on God as Father... As Father, the God that is, who judges everyone impartially according to their work, behave with holy fear throughout the time in which you are residents here. You know, after all, that you were ransomed from the futile practices inherited from your ancestors, and that this ransom came not through perishable things like gold or silver, but through the precious blood of the Messiah, like a lamb without spot or blemish. He was destined for this before the foundations of the world and appeared at the end of the times for your sake. For you, that is, who through him believe in the God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And lastly, the Gospel of John chapter 14, verses 5 and 6. On the night of the Last Supper, 
as Jesus and his disciples were talking, it says, Actually, Master, said Thomas to him, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? I am the way, replied Jesus, and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of God for the people of God. I don't do this very often. I'm not one that typically makes a lot of jokes, but I'm going to kind of have a little bit of funny here at the, at the beginning. I'm going to pick on everybody here today. All right. I'm an equal opportunity picker. I'm going to pick on everybody, including myself, here, here in a minute. So every generation has its fashion travesties. Every one of them. And we're going to go over some of them here in just a second. Like I said, I'm going to pick on everybody for just a minute. In the 1950s, the furniture and the wallpaper, I'm, I'm sorry, but it was, it was bad. It was bad. I've got Sonny shaking his head no, but I'm, I'm sorry, Sonny. The upholstery, I've, I've seen some of it, you know, my grandparents' furniture and the, no, the upholstery. I'm sorry. No, can't stand it. And that cat clock, no. Macrame, no. I'm sorry, I don't like the cat clock. 1960s, all right, the 60s weren't, weren't as bad, but ladies, the beehive hairdo? Uh, no, no, that was, that was wrong. All right, now I need to pick on the guys. In the 1970s, the leisure suit? And I've seen the pictures of my dad and my uncle's weddings. What was with the poofy shirts? I, that, was, that was a bad one. All right, now I'm going to get a little closer, a little closer to my time. All right, the 1980s, it was neon, everything was neon, and way too much bloody hairspray. I was, I, I was a kid then, and so I remember my babysitters coming in, and the reek of that hairspray was just terrible. Yeah. All right, now I'm going to, now, now finally we're going to get to, to me. And in the 90s, those of you who grew up in my generation may remember something that was called Junko jeans. I don't know if anybody remembers those. Those were those, were those jeans that they were made with like 10 yards of fabric. They were huge. And if you put a 13-year-old in these, all you saw was their head. These pants were so huge that... The, they just kind of flittered about like wings all over the place, especially whenever they were riding a skateboard or something like that. That was another thing in the 90s that was big was skateboarding. I never did that because I'd end up getting hurt. I can say in all honesty, I never wore those horrible things. I wore carpenter jeans, which my understanding is a different kind of fashion faux pas today, kind of like how I like to wear um, cargo shorts. A lot of people call those dad shorts now. But hey, I'm a dad, so you know what? I can wear them. The thing that was famous about... I'm going to bring this around. Don't worry. The horses are going to be brought into the barn. The thing that was famous about Junko jeans was that if you didn't have them properly fastened, you could fall on them and kill yourself. No one seemed to know what a belt was for in the 90s. I don't know what the deal was, but nobody wore a belt. And so it could be a real issue. So as we begin, we begin to look at 
our armor of God passages in these coming weeks. We have to be willing to examine each and every piece in this armor set that Paul describes to us and really try to understand what his meaning is. Because, yes, I understand, we are not talking about a literal, physical set of armor. He's speaking in figurative language here. But I believe that for each thing that he mentions, there's a reason why he calls truth a belt. He doesn't call truth the breastplate or the the sandals. He calls it a belt. And so I think there is a very valid reason as to why he mentions each piece as a certain thing. So we're going to have to try to get into Paul's head a little bit to try to understand exactly what he's getting at. So many of us read the Armor of God passages, we pray it, but I don't think that we really comprehend what it all means. And Paul starts, as I said, with a rather innocuous piece of clothing that seems unimportant. It doesn't seem like it's going to protect you much. But his foundation is a belt. His foundation is a belt. Because, you see, it's going to be what holds all the rest of it together. So as Peter says, let us belt up our minds, let us gird our minds as we look at the belt of truth. I'm going to go into history professor mode for just a moment. I think most of you know that's what I was in the previous life for a little while. But what I've got here, this is my belt that I wear with my kilt whenever I play my bagpipes. And maybe one of these days I'll I'll flick that on one of you. This is the belt that I wear, and you'll notice it's a little different than a normal belt. It's it's wide, it's heavy, it's thick. Um, Some of you, when you were kids, you might have been afraid of a belt that looked like this. I don't know. (laughs) But with a Roman suit of arms, the belt was very important. The belt did a number of things. Number one, it helped gather up their tunic so that it wasn't likely to get snagged and caught on things. I believe next week we're looking at the breastplate of righteousness. And if you've ever seen Roman armor, it's not like knight's armor that we usually think of. It was not one solid piece in front, but it was a bunch of metal bands that went around them. I'll try to bring a picture of it next week to show on the screen. But each is called Lorica Segmentata which I believe meant something like lobster armor. If you ever look at a lobster's tail, it's kind of like that a little bit. And each band that went around had its own belt that fastened it as well. So belts were very important to a Roman suit of armor. If you didn't have them, your armor would quite literally just fall off of you and it would be of no earthly good to you whatsoever. The other thing that the belt did is it was where you put your sword whenever you weren't using it. You had a scabbard that hung from a belt, and whenever you didn't have it in your hand, that hung from your belt. So it's what helped keep your weapons together as well. So I think there is a good reason why Paul makes this the foundation of the armor of God. Now, you may have heard, and it may sound a little bit awkward, but I believe there are passages in the Old Testament that call, talk about girding up one's loins. We'll talk about what that's all about here in just a second. 
So if you've ever seen artist drawings of what people wore in the Middle East uh, in Bible times, they wore a long tunic that pretty much went to their ankles. It helped keep, uh, keep the sun off their bodies so they wouldn't get scorched. And it was made out of lighter fabric, so it breathed, and it actually helped keep them cool to keep themselves fully covered, which is great for staying cool. But if you're going off to war, you try running in one of these things, and you're going to, well, the lady that wears skirts, if you try running them, you, know, you get caught in it, and you'll fall. And if you fall in the battle, well, you're pretty much dead. You're done. And so when they would go off to war, they would basically gather up the skirts of their, uh, their tunic, kind of bunch it up, pull up around, pull up between their legs, and then they'd put their belt on and kind of looked a little bit like a diaper, to be quite honest, but it kept it all up out of their legs, and then they could run freely. They would be able to run freely and not be hindered or encumbered by their clothes. A belt also kind of helps support your body. Any of you that, that lift heavy things, you might wear a support belt. So belts do all of these things. They help uh, keep things from falling about. They hold things together. And they support your abdomen. They support your muscles. Pro provides support. So what does this all mean? How does this translate into truth? And we're going to get a little bit more into that in a minute. But I think what we can say here then is that what Paul is saying is that, okay, truth is what holds us together. It's what keeps us from falling on ourselves. And it is what is going to keep everything else that is critical to our life as a Christian together and on us so that we have it and it doesn't come off of us. Peter refers to belting up our minds with truth, essentially. And immediately after, he begins to talk about how we're supposed to be holy as God is holy. So part of this process of belting our minds with truth is that we realize, okay, we live in a broken world. The world isn't the way it should be. And so we need to not behave like everybody else in the world does. We need to realize that there are problems with the way the world is. And so we don't want to be like everyone else. We need to prepare ourselves, have ourselves made ready to meet God. Now one passage, and I, I really could have gone hog wild with scripture today if I wanted, but I decided to leave this one out because it's so well known. I can just kind of mention it in passing. But if you remember in the Gospel of John, when, when Jesus and Pontius Pilate meet and talk, Jesus speaks about revealing the truth. And Pilate gives kind of a sarcastic retort and he says, what is truth? He says, what is truth? Kind of a relativist statement. Much like Pilate complained to Jesus, belief in absolute truth is on the wane. It's on the downhill slide these days. Many people like to speak of many smaller truths, but to say that there is one overriding absolute truth above all else, most of the academics in many universities today would laugh at such an idea. 
Our society likes to believe that truth is whatever you make of it. That we each make our own truth. And that we are the writers of what we say is true for each and every one of us. And when we do this, we destroy ourselves in the process. Because when we allow ourselves to be the ones that dictate what is true and what is not, what is right and what is wrong, we fall into a horrible downhill slide where everything becomes based on our preferences and our wants and our wishes and our desires, and if we are honest with ourselves, we realize that at times, many times, our wants, our wishes, and desires are not going to be in line with what is best for us and for everyone else. When we treat the truth as relative to our own wants and wishes, the enemy is able to get a toehold in where he can convince us of any number of things as being okay. So when we do not have ourselves belted up with absolute truth, then the enemy is able to come in and lie to us and convince us of anything that he wants to. From Holocaust denial, believe it or not, there are people that say that the Holocaust never happened, to saying that a person is only a person after they're born alive. When we make the truth relative to our own desires... All sorts of horrible possibilities present themselves. So coming back again to Ephesians, Paul tells us that we are to gird ourselves with the belt of truth. And I think we've established essentially that what truth does that it's what holds us together, it's what holds the universe together, it's what allows us to be effective as Christians. But I think we now need to ask the question and understand and ask the question that Pilate did, what is truth? Peter tells us, as I said, to be holy in our conduct and remember that we were purchased not with the things of this world, he says gold or silver, but with the blood of Jesus Christ. At the Last Supper, Jesus, speaking to Thomas, says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. And it is this truth that I believe that we are to gird ourselves with, the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of what Jesus did. Our confession of Christ as Lord is what holds all the rest of the armor of God together. It's only when we come to our knees in spirit that, and say Jesus Christ is Lord that all the rest of the things that we're going to look at in the coming weeks become even possible. Because if we don't have that foundational truth, Jesus Christ is Lord, he saved me from my sin, then, then the rest of this won't even matter. That is the groundwork. It is following in Jesus' steps, being holy as he is holy, that will keep us from stumbling over our vulnerable human flesh, just as it was necessary to belt up the clothing that they wore in Bible times so that they wouldn't fall whenever they were in battle. 
If we are to stand against the onslaught of Satan in these days, that yes, are the last days, because guess what? One of these days, whether it's tonight or tomorrow night or next week or next month or next year or a hundred years from now, it doesn't matter when, at some point, Jesus is going to come back and it's going to be game, set, and match. And if we are going to stand, we must stand girded in the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is only trusting in that truth, that is the absolute essential truth to life. It is only trusting in that truth that can make us stand on even the most troubled of waters. And in fact, it's the truth that holds the entire universe together, holds all of our being together and provides every breath that we take. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Amen. As we come to the end of our service today.